Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. Today on the podcast, we're joined by Dr. David Grusky, who's professor of sociology at Stanford University and director of the Center on Poverty and Inequality. His research addresses trends in gender, racial, and class-based inequality, and how to best measure these differences. Today we talk about the social and economic effects of the Great Recession, and what every citizen should know about inequality in the United States. Dr. Grusky, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Great. Well, um, I've been looking through your work preparing for um, this conversation, and I noticed that last year you published an edited volume on the Great Recession with uh, Bruce, Bruce Western and Christopher Weimer. And I thought this might be a great place to start our conversation because obviously so many of our listeners are familiar with the Great Recession. Everyone knows it's been going on and some of us have been uh, more impacted than others, but I thought we could just maybe start out with some of the basics. Um, for instance, in the beginning of the book, you you talk about the Great Recession and how it's different from previous recessions. So could you talk a little bit about what makes this recession we've just been going through significant or greater than previous recessions? Sure. I mean, I think there are many, many ways in which it differs from prior recessions, but if you're you're forced to single out the most important way in which it differs, it would be the, the depth of the of the unemployment problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, in all of the recent recessions, what one sees is that there's been a acceleration of the economic restructuring that that's been underway, mm-hmm. such that, for example, um, the manufacturing sector losses become even more prominent during the recessionary period. That same dynamic has played out again in this Great Recession, but in more extreme form. And and the implication is that that we have, of course, very high unemployment, right. persisting high unemployment. It's also taken on a long-term form that hasn't been to the same extent the case in prior recessions. So we have a growing cadre of long-term unemployed people who have a diminishing connection to the to the labor force uh, uh, in, in a way that we haven't seen before hmm. uh, and one could even be worried about the rise of, of, of an underclass as a result the rise of a group of people who just don't have uh, much of an attachment hmm. uh, to, 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 to jobs in the, in, in the way that one would want um, and then you don't see um, a recovery in the employment to population ratio in the way that, that one would have wanted and in the way that had been the case in prior recessions. So that employment to population ratio has been more suppressed, hmm. um, has been long in recovery, uh, and more so again now than in the past. Final employment problem, there's much more underemployment in this recession than in prior ones. So people who are often working fewer hours than they would like uh, there's more such people now than what's the case in past recessions. So across the board, it's just a big employment problem, uh, and more so in other other recessions. So that's what I would single out as as the distinctive feature of this recession, and what really makes it a great recession. 
Right. And so many of us are here are used to hearing, you know, month by month, here's what the unemployment rate, it's higher or lower, well, mostly. Well, I guess it's going down now, but for a long time it was it's going getting higher and higher and then day by day, you know, what are the financial markets doing? Are they up or down and things like that? So I think, you know, many people are really familiar with hearing all these different indicators, but you know, I wonder if if people out there might be wondering, well, you know, what what is it that's made it so deep and so long tailed here with the employment problem? Well, there's, there's, there are big debates about that, but, mm-hmm. but I think there's much evidence on behalf of the view that the, that the recession is operating to accelerate economic restructuring. Mm-hmm. There's, in effect, a, a latent weakness in the manufacturing sector that gets exposed and revealed in, in a recession, and, and then the recession becomes a vehicle by which that weakness is, is converted into, into job loss. Hmm. Uh, and so it's profound structural problems that, that, that then lead to this recession being, being a deeply problematic one on the employment front. And that's different than previous recessions, like the, the one in the early 2000s and then the one in the, the 1980s? No, the same the same dynamic. It's just in more more extreme form, more pronounced uh, in this particular one. Yeah, yeah. And then the other things that that you note um, in the opening chapter of your book were the um, you called it an unusually dramatic financial crisis, and then also the housing mm-hmm. uh, crisis. These have also contributed to this great recession dynamic, right? That's right. That's right. I mean, one of the obvious complications is that insofar as you don't have employment, people don't have the income to then consume. And we know that consumption is a very fundamental part of, of, of our economy. And if you don't have people working, they're not bringing home paychecks, and they can't then spend in a way that would then generate jobs. Right. But another way in which people can spend, of course, is to withdraw money, as it were, from their houses, right? Mm-hmm. Um, by, by, by taking on, in effect, Treating their houses as they say, an ATM, and right. taking out money from the house, and then spending. If you don't have employment income, you could use your house in that fashion. But of course, that possibility has been destroyed as well. And so, the combination of this housing crisis and an employment crisis makes it especially difficult to understand how we're going to get consumption to happen again. Uh huh. And what are some of the the theories on? How, I mean, not to get too um, wonky about it, but in terms of theories that are out there about how a recovery might start to happen, what are what are some of your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's it's uh, increasingly uh, important to, to 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 recognize the positive effect that the stimulus had. Mm. Uh, in the, in the early part of the, of the, of the, of the recession. And in particular, what it did, and that hasn't always been fully appreciated, is that it allowed states to continue, to continue, uh, offering jobs, even though their own, uh, financial situation was often very problematic. Mm-hmm. One of the continuing concerns is, of course, as that part of the stimulus, um, uh, fades away, how the states are going to continue to offer employment. Uh, but the one obvious solution or, or, or way to proceed would be to, to, to not pull back on the support for state governments in a way that many fear might, might, might happen. Mm. Um, 
that was a very important part of kind of forestalling what could have been a much more substantial crisis than what was the case, and I think mm-hmm. continues to be uh, really important. And so, and so, one would hope that that kind of uh, support for for for, for the states could, could continue on. I think that that's one thing that could be done. Uh, it's within our capacity and and, and should be done. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, in your um, in that edited volume that uh, called the Great Recession. Um, you asked your contributors to look beyond just the um, economic and, and financial effects of the recession to, you know, some other broader effects like on social life and inequality um, and things like that. And I wondered if you might want to share with us a few things, um, a few effects of the Great Recession that maybe people aren't generally aware of. Yeah, um, there was a lot of discussion early on in the recession that there would be profound fallout, mm-hmm. cultural and behavioral fallout, that all sorts of, of of social and behavioral indicators might fluctuate in dramatic ways. We didn't find evidence of dramatic fluctuations, at least in this early point. Hmm. But there were some 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 apparent effects. For example, there was a decline in fertility um, that appears to be a consequence of the of of the Great Recession. Uh, and it's plausible, of course, that that insofar as people are concerned about about their financial situation, that they wouldn't they wouldn't want to to uh, go forward and have a very costly uh, child uh, uh, in anticipation of possible economic problems that they would they would be facing. So that uh-huh. makes good sense, and indeed, there's some evidence of it. Uh, okay. uh, Phil Morgan wrote the the chapter that laid out the case for that decline in fertility. And he found some very fascinating evidence that that decline was especially substantial in those states in which concerns about the uh, economic health of the state were especially paramount. Hmm. So in states where people were, you know, or perhaps the economic crisis was more intense, you're saying that the findings were that people were less inclined to have children in light of that? I think that the chapter didn't so much hinge on the actual objective circumstances within that state, but rather what the residents of the state thought. What they perceived. Was in okay. store. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it was more a perceptual story okay. than, than an objective circumstances story. And in particular, what, what Phil Morgan, I think, uncovered was that Republicans were, on average, especially likely to, to see the future in dire terms, and hence mm-hmm. were especially. Uh, 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 likely to to, uh, to to presumably to be to be limiting fertility as a result hmm so political beliefs were a big part of that as well in it's true the true the mediating effect of one's forecast about about the about the future of the economy yeah. uh-huh uh-huh okay interesting and what about the concern that the great recession might uh, increase what some say is already Growing. I mean, what we know is already growing inequality in the U.S. So, has it deepened inequality? Has it made um, poverty worse? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there there was some expectation early on that the Great Recession would resemble not the previous recessions, but rather the Great Depression right. in the sense it would ultimately be a compressive event. So, as might be recalled, with the Great Depression ultimately precipitated the New Deal and a, and, and a set of equalizing institutional reforms uh, uh, that then brought about a, a reduction in income inequality from what was an extremely high level. Right. That was one of the great 
sort of consequences, unexpected perhaps consequences of the, of the, of the Great Depression. But all subsequent recessions have 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 uh, not had that impressive effect. Mm-hmm. They've been inequality increasing, and we found that this particular recession uh, likewise has been inequality increasing. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the very top of the of the income distribution, they did experience a momentary loss right at the beginning of the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Might, for example, get less in the way of stock dividends and, and interest income and so forth uh, during the beginning of that financial crisis. But we've now seen that all such losses uh, 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 were wiped away, and, and, and now they, the, at the very top of the distribution, there's been a rebound uh, in terms mm-hmm. of income. They're doing just fine okay. uh, and are covered, whereas at the bottom of the of the income distribution, there's there's continuing losses. The implication of which then is it's led to an increase in inequality. Mm-hmm. And what about per, for particular subgroups? Like I remember, even just within the last six months or so, seeing press about, uh, or even in, in your chapter, you mentioned the man session. You know that it's been harder on men, mm-hmm. or that it's been harder for African Americans and uh, young adults that are just entering uh, the job market. Were were those things that you or your contributors found in the volume as well? Yeah, I mean, it is, it is obviously a complicated story, and mm-hmm. one piece of it that has gotten a lot of press uh, of late has been the claim that um, recent college graduates have, have, have suffered a mm-hmm. lot of late. Um, and that's a fascinating claim because on the face of it, it's, it's, it's true. Of course, unemployment rates for recent college graduates are higher now than they were in the past, and hence they have indeed suffered mm-hmm. uh, by virtue of the Great Recession. But if you look at the effects on unemployment for each of the educational categories, what one sees is that the increase in unemployment is roughly proportionate to the base rate that prevailed before the recession hit. And so within, say, the college-educated group, you have a very low base rate of unemployment before the recession, and an increase, you know, proportionate to that low base rate, maybe about 50% increase off of a very low base rate. Hmm. Uh, Whereas, by contrast, you get the same proportionate increase off of a very high base rate for, say, those who don't have a high school degree, or even those who just have a high school degree, their base rates are substantially higher prior to the onset of the recession, and then you get a, a proportionate increase off that high base that leads to an absolute increase that's much more substantial than the absolute increase that you see among recent college graduates. Hmm. So the ups- upshot is, yes, recent college graduates have suffered, but not nearly as much as is the case for those who are less credentialed. Hmm. So that it's a little bit fascinating that, that, that the media has focused so much on the trails of the college-educated when, although of course they've suffered, right. uh, nonetheless, the, it's nothing compared to the suffering that's obtained among other, other groups that perhaps don't have the same voice and aren't as prominent um, mm-hmm. within, within the media. Yeah, I was just, just going to follow up and ask, why do you think that is? And perhaps, perhaps it is because of the, um, the connections and the relative you know, power of, of that group as opposed to... Um, those that have less of a voice, as you said. Um, yeah, well, it's fascinating to to ask what what the Occupy movement has 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 done in this regard. Yeah, but it's 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 
arguably, I mean, the, the jury's still out, but it's arguably changed the conversation we have about poverty and inequality in a very profound way. Hmm. Uh, but it's also, at least part of that movement, has, has, has focused quite a bit on the travails of the college educated mm-hmm. um, and has has perhaps focused the conversation not so much on on inequality and poverty in mm-hmm. general but rather on 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 the the harm that's been that, that, that's been experienced by that particular sector of the population which is all in all a relatively privileged one right Right. So, I mean, that's a great question. What 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 are your thoughts on the Occupy movement, both as a, I guess as a response to the Great Recession, but also, you know, how do you see it playing into, you know, what might come in the in the conversation, I guess, po- um, political wise, or in terms of even change, you know, in policy and things like that. You know, that's a great question. The distinctive feature of the Great Depression and why ultimately it was such a consequential uh, uh, economic event was that it brought about fundamental institutional reform, right? Uh, which changed our conversation mm-hmm. about inequality and poverty in a, obviously a profound way. We have not had any fundamental institutional reform as yet coming out of this, this event. Of course, it's very early. Mm. Um, and, and there's no reason to believe that it might not yet happen. And and uh, Occupy is perhaps one way in which it, it could come to happen because of this change in, in the conversation that Occupy is precipitating. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so I, I think, I mean, we haven't had this kind of change in the way in which we view poverty and inequality for a, for, for, for a long time. This is a very extraordinary event. It could, of course, sizzle away and become nothing right. or could could be the kind of transformative event that, that brings about institutional change mm-hmm. I, I think i think i, I wouldn't love the latter uh i i can see it happening hmm. and you say it's relatively early yet so i mean the recession technically lasted from you know 2007 to 2009 and now we're kind of in the the long tail mm-hmm. of of yep. the fallout from it but so I mean, it's, for some, it might seem like, wow, this has been going on a long time. What do you mean it's early yet? Early well, if you t- look at the Great Depression, mm-hmm. if you look at the Great Depression, the types of institutional reform uh, that ultimately uh, uh, was experienced uh, ha- hadn't yet happened, if you're, if you, if you kind of project that, that, mm-hmm. that economic event on the present day. That is, it would have only just just been starting now hmm. uh, the sort of discussion of the institutional reform that eventually took place hmm. uh, so by that time frame at least uh, we're, we're, we're still early right. and what's, what's been distinctive I think about this this recession is that we often think that all is well and we finally pulled out and then and then some new event uh, uh, surfaces and 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 changes the optimism into pessimism. Right. Uh, that's happened many times already, and I don't think we can rule out, sadly, that it may that it may happen again. Of course, Europe has always been right. recently a precipitant in that regard, and there are many other possible shocks to the system that could that could that could push us back down. And so I don't I don't think it's over yet, sadly. Mm-hmm. So there could be more, like you said, shocks to the system in in terms of, you know keeping this thing going, but then also in terms of seeing um, the ramifications of it, right? Both 
economically, but also in these other areas that you that we've talked a little bit about, we might not know yet, you know, what the real or lasting impact of the recession might be. I think that's right. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to bear in mind also that as because employment is slow, so slow to recover, mm-hmm. um, and it's slow to recover in part because it's 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 bound up with this economic restructuring, right? There are more fundamental, profound economic problems at stake here mm-hmm. that the recession just exposes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but 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 the, the, the fix isn't in place, and 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 hence uh, and hence there's a very prolonged, drawn out effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, which makes it possible, of course, for for ultimately you know, more more fundamental institutional reform to take place as as, as people become exasperated with with, right. with with the slowness of the recovery. Mm-hmm. And when you say economic restructuring, maybe we should ha- have you describe that a little bit. What you mean by that, just for listeners who might not uh, be aware of what you mean by economic restructuring. Well, it's part of this transition out of a manufacturing economy and into, I suppose, for lack of a better term, a, a service economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that transition has been a, a difficult one mm-hmm. for the United States for a variety of reasons. Um, uh, and I think, I think one important reason why it's been so difficult is that, is that um, the price of, it, of highly educated labor mm. has been very high in the United States. Mm. Uh, and I think it's been high in part because we ration higher education, hmm. uh, and that props up the price for, for college-educated labor in a way that prevents the United States from becoming an economy that draw, draws on highly educated labor to the extent that it, that it might. So this transition out of a manufacturing economy and into a service economy is slowed down hmm. because the price of highly educated labor is so high. And the price of highly educated labor is so high because we haven't expanded the highly educated sector of the labor force to the extent that, 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 that we should. It's really been very, very stable, that sector, uh, in a way that hasn't been the case in other other uh, rich countries where there's been an expansion of that sector in an ongoing way. We've, we've stopped expanding that sector. And it's an interesting and important question to ask why. But mm-hmm. my contention is that for whatever reason, for whatever reason why that's happened, it's 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 made it difficult for us to affect this transition to, to to a service economy. So essentially, we're not educating enough. There's not enough people that are getting a, a college education and to to fill that sector, and the, and part of that is because college isn't as accessible or as affordable as it could be. Exactly. Okay. Exactly, and I know that's a, that's an unusual. For some, that's an unusual diagnosis, right? A lot of people think there are too many college-educated people. They right. say, look, not everyone who's getting a college education is, is, is finding employment. Right. But one has to bear in mind that there's still this vast disjuncture between unemployment for the college-educated and unemployment for, for, for those who don't have a college education. You're mm. much more protected from the threat of unemployment if you're college-educated right. than if you're not. There's a huge gap. If yeah. there was a free flow of labor, if there weren't any barriers, then you'd expect to be an equilibration in the unemployment rates between those who have college educated education and those who don't, right? Mm-hmm. Because a laborer trying to decide whether or not to get a college degree would say, well, if if I get one, I have a much lower risk of unemployment. So you'd expect it to flow into that sector until the unemployment rates are, are roughly the same mm-hmm. between the two sectors. But that hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. Because there are bottlenecks. Because, for example, you know, we all know the most obvious bottleneck 
it's that if you're you know unlucky to be born into a poor family or a poor neighborhood, right. you're not going to get a high quality primary or secondary education, mm-hmm. and you're not going to be in a position to go to college. Hmm. At the bottleneck, right? At the profound structural problem in the United States, a very special, extreme problem in the United States. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's making it difficult, I think, for us to, to move into the service economy. And you said that's different than other wealthier nations who you know, don't seem to have the same bottleneck. Why, why is that the case for us? Well, I think in part we've profoundly linked education with uh, one's neighborhood in mm. which one lives, residential neighborhood. That type of segregation is deeply built into into the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, society, deeply. Mm-hmm. And it's one of, I think, our most fundamental social problems. Mm-hmm. And it's a social problem that's parlaying into an economic problem mm-hmm. for the reasons I just outlined. Well, it's interesting that you say that because just a week ago I spoke with um, Dr. Robert Sampson about his recent book on Chicago and the Enduring Neighborhood Effect. And and so this, this conversation with you will, will flow well off of that, I guess, um, so you are starting a, a website. Is it uh, coming out soon? Called is it called Recession Trends? And you're going to have information and data, I assume, available about some of these effects of the recession that we've been talking about. That's right. So this is a a, a joint initiative with uh, the Russell Sage Foundation, uh, and the idea is to make available to the general public, to scholars, to to journalists, to anyone who might be interested, to make available uh, trend data hmm. on, on on the recession, not just labor market data, but also some of the cultural and behavioral fallout, hmm. such as fertility, um, uh, public opinion, political attitudes, and so forth. All the trend data that might be relevant to, to the recession and its effects are, are brought together in, in this one one website, uh, recessiontrends.org, and 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 it becomes possible for people to to uh, create customized graphs hmm. uh, to bring together those trend data and, and and examine how this recession and other recessions have, have affected them. So that's one part of the the, the, the initiative, just hmm. to, to make the data readily available. As it stands now, you have to go to the Census Bureau site, you have to go to um, GSS site, uh, right. all sorts of different sites uh, that are often very difficult to to uh, to access. Yes, they are. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and we yeah. bring it all together and make it easy to, cu- huh. to create customized graphs that you know teachers can use for their classrooms, high school, uh, college, and so forth. Uh, scholars can use for their research. Anyone can can use. So that's part of it. But the other part of it is we put together top scholars. 16 top scholars of the recession, some of whom appeared in the book, The Great Recession. Hmm. And I've asked them to, to put together a, what we're calling a recession brief, hmm. which lays out the effects of the of the Great Recession on a particular domain. So, for example, Michael Howe is, is doing one of these recession briefs on the labor market. Tim Smeeting is, 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 is writing a recession brief on income inequality and the effects of, of, the, of the recession on income inequality. Uh, and then each of those recession briefs will be will be uh, hosted on the site. And then, as there's some new development, like new labor market development, like a rise in unemployment of a profound sort, then then Mike Howard or whomever is responsible for the relevant domain will issue an update hmm. uh, that will that will discuss the implications of that development for for 
for the labor market or whatever the domain might be. And the idea is that instead of always relying on, say, the New York Times to, to, to kind of mediate the, the views of, of these experts, hmm. and instead we'll just directly present those views through recession trend, recessiontrends.org. Wow, that's great. So will these briefs be written, you know, in, in a way that, like, the general public or kind of your average citizen might be able to understand and, and grapple with the issues at hand? That's right. We're aiming for something just like, say, a, a New York Times piece mm-hmm. at that level. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but again, not mediated by, by a journalist, but rather written directly by the, by the expert, him or herself. Well, that's great. So it's not a journalist picking out which quotes they think... Uh, fit best with their story but just kind of firsthand that's right yeah we don't lead off with the personal interest story sorry about that but but uh in all other events uh, uh in all other respects it's 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 roughly kind of pitched at a at a, at a new york times level oh that's great so is the website live yet or when will it be it's not live yet uh uh but it should be in 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 about a month or so about a month oh great so everyone, everyone out there, keep your eyes peeled for it's recessiontrends.org, You said that's right. Okay, um, great. Well, we've already touched on you know the issues of inequality and, and poverty, but it's obviously important. You know those topics are obviously important in light of the recession, as well as the political debates that have been going on so far this year, and we have many more of those to come in the next several months. And this is you know a really key area for your own research. So I thought that. It might be nice to have a little conversation about, you know, what are some of the major facts about poverty and inequality in the U.S. that maybe your average citizen, informed um, citizen, should know that that maybe they don't. Yeah, interesting question. Um, let me let me give you a, an inequality fact that I don't think is as well appreciated hmm. as it should be. It's a simple fact, but I think an important one. Uh, and because of the the Occupy movement. There's, of course, been much, and for other reasons, there's been much more attention focused on the rise of income inequality in the U.S. Uh, and I think we've defaulted um, relatively quickly and maybe prematurely to the assumption that the best and only way to take on rising income inequality is through more aggressive uh, tax-based redistributive agenda. So the idea is that what we need to do uh, is to tax the, the well-off more aggressively, and that would then be an important and perhaps sufficient corrective for the uh-huh. takeoff in, in income inequality. And I think this is, of course, one should do that. If I can inject my own values, I think that type of agenda is on the mark and should be pursued. Mm-hmm. But what I think is a bit problematic is the assumption that that is all that needs to be done. Hmm. And wh- why is that problematic? Um, it's because that is a prescription that doesn't meet well with the with the diagnosis. That is, hmm. what we see is that there's been a dramatic increase in income inequality, even in pre-tax terms. That hmm. is, before we even get to to tax policy, hmm. the sizes of the paychecks that people are bringing home are vastly more disparate now than was the case in the past. Hmm. So something's happening within our labor market institutions that's generating more inequality. And 
one might want to take a very close look at those institutions and why they're generating more inequality in trying to address the question of what we should do about income inequality. So all of that is to say is yes, it's well and good and important to to um, to change our tax policy and in particular to to to, to tax the, the top of the income distribution more aggressively. But mm. that's not going to solve the problem. Uh, there's a much more profound institutional problem uh, uh, that that is generating the uh, the takeoff in income inequality. Mm. And does that institutional problem that you're talking about tie back to the bottleneck with um, education and the kind of this the shifting in the economic structure of the country? I think so. Exactly. Uh-huh. Exactly. I think the fact that we, I mean, so yeah, let me step back. Um, we all know, I don't think anyone disputes this, that an important reason why there's this takeoff in income inequality is because those who are highly educated are getting paid a lot more mm-hmm. now than in the past as compared to those who have less education. So it's the growing return to education that's that underlies this takeoff in income inequality. So then you have to ask, why are those who are college-educated getting paid so much now? Mm. And the answer, in part, is this bottleneck. Mm. Uh, You know, poor people, people who are born into poor families or poor neighborhoods, can see the high returns to education. One has to believe they want those high returns. But if you're born into a poor neighborhood or a poor family, you can't get well-trained at the primary or secondary level. He can't take advantage of those high returns because he can't get into colleges given that poor preparation. Hmm. And so there's a bottleneck. Hmm. And that that leads to this perpetuation of high returns uh, and, and a perpetuation of inequality as well. Okay, so beyond the redistributing, you know, funds through um, a tax-based system, you're saying there probably needs to be some structural interventions, particularly around education, in low-income neighborhoods, but also even at the the level of higher education as well. That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, there there are two types of bottlenecks. There's a bottleneck of a supply sort in which in which people who are born into poor neighborhoods or families don't have access to high quality primary and secondary schooling, and hence ultimately don't have fair and open access to college. That's a profoundly important bottleneck. It's one of which. I think we're all aware, but mm-hmm. we pay lip service to. We issue these very tepid reforms uh, that don't in any way appreciate how fundamental the problem is and, and how and how we would have to undertake major structural reforms to take it head on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a well-known problem. But there's another, another bottleneck that I don't think is well-appreciated and that's on the, on, the, on, the, on the demand side. That is, it's not the case that institutions like Stanford or, or Harvard or Princeton or Berkeley or all the, the high-quality uh, college, colleges across the country, it's not as if they're ramping up the number of slots that they offer. Mm. A lot of people want to take advantage of the high returns that come with a, 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 a high-quality college education, and yet we ration out the slots. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, and, and that's because these various institutions don't have the capacity to increase the number. It's not the case, say, that Berkeley is in a good position to, to ramp up the number of 
of, of slots given how dire its financial circumstances are. Mm-hmm. And nor do the elite institutions like Harvard or Princeton have any incentive to, 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 to ramp up the number of slots either. Right. Uh, and so for a variety of reasons, there's, there's been a, uh, a bottleneck on the demand side as well. And, and that prevents, prevents that, that, those high returns to college education from being uh, 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 reduced over time. Hmm. And it seems that some of this may be tied to the the broader um, economic situation as well. I'm just I'm just thinking in the last several years here at the University of Minnesota, it's been the state continuing to cut back its funding to the university and the university trying to, you know, expand access and and also trying to maintain its status as a high quality institution but yet continuing to be cut in terms of the state investment in that and it it seems to yep. be part of the problem as well that's right that's yeah. right so you have strapped public institutions they can't react in a way that would be rational if, if larger considerations could be could be borne in mind but they can't mm-hmm. yeah so what do you think I'm just curious what you think is possible given the current political environment. I mean, it just seems like you can't talk about new taxes and you, everything's about cutting back and, and paring down. I mean, so what kind of, of policy outcomes might you think are possible in, in the climate that we have right now? That's a good question. And, <laughs> and uh, I think the reason in part why I focus so much on, on education is because our commitment to equality of opportunity is so profound. And it's not just an equality of outcome issue. As if we were to expand access to education, um, it would, of course, reduce the returns to a college education and thereby lower income inequality. So it would have a, it would equalize outcome. Mm-hmm. But what makes it I think a more palatable intervention from the point of view of U.S. sensibilities right. is that it's also an equality of opportunity issue. Right. Uh, and if one pitches it in those terms, uh, you can deliver on a commitment, I think, that's pretty fundamental for all Americans, whatever their political persuasions might be. Hmm. Uh, and then at the same time, as a side benefit for those who care, also reduce the amount of, the amount of income inequality. So I think that's the type of reform that that has legs in the sense that it's it's not a it's not a partisan reform. Hmm. It's a reform that 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 that, um, that is consistent with the, the the views and ideals of, of, of most everyone, regardless of, of their politics. So the idea of expanding opportunity, opening up the chance for more people to get an education, is much more palatable. You're saying to our general American sensibility about you know kind of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps as opposed to taking a government handout. Exactly. Yeah. And yet, so much could be done on the inequality front by virtue of that reform that I find it very attractive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, for, that... for the purely purely pragmatic reason that it could actually happen. Right. Yeah. Which is, you know, extremely important given the kind of political uh, environment that we live in. If if it's not something that sort of both sides can find something to like, then we might as well just forget about it. <laughs> That's right. So, well, you're also director of the Stanford Center on Poverty and Inequality, and I thought maybe you could tell us a little bit about that center. Um, what do you all do there, and what could our listeners find um, either at Stanford, Stanford or online if they were interested in, in finding out more? 
Um, sure. Uh, so we recently became one of the uh, uh, national poverty centers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that capacity, our signature commitment is to understanding trends mm-hmm. in poverty and inequality. Uh, and in particular, measuring those trends in poverty and inequality in a way that's more systematic than has heretofore been, been the case. Mm-hmm. So we have nine research groups, uh, and each one is oriented toward toward monitoring and explaining trends in various types of poverty and inequality outcomes. Um, let me give you some examples. Yeah. Um, we have... We have... Uh, a research group in poverty measurement and trends, mm. uh, a group that's trying to exploit recent developments uh, that uh, improve the way in which we measure poverty. The new supplemental poverty measure is a revolution in mm-hmm. how we and how we measure poverty, and, and we're trying to build and expand on that. Mm. Uh, I'll give you just one example. Um, we're, we're working very hard right now in trying to develop uh, a defensible measurement of of poverty that could be that could be released on a monthly basis. Hmm. And we have to ask one reason why we haven't attended much to poverty in the US case is that we don't measure it very frequently. Hmm. The new supplemental poverty measure comes out only once a year hmm. and by the time it comes out, it speaks to it's really a piece of history. Hmm. Uh, it speaks to uh, a period of time relatively distant. Hmm. Uh, and so that sort of undermines any any possibility of tailoring our policy in response to the poverty numbers. Hmm. When when unemployment data get released, and they get released monthly, right? We instantly talk about what sorts of policy might be undertaken hmm. um, in response to that latest hmm. those latest numbers. Uh, so we build our policy quite intimately around those numbers, and, and we should. Mm-hmm. But it's not as if unemployment is all that we care about. We should also care deeply about poverty. It's not hmm. the same. Right. It hits different people. Hmm. Uh, and if we had a much more regular reporting of poverty, we might then begin to develop a policy apparatus that could be responsive to changes in poverty. Uh, and so that's what we're working on. That's hmm. just one one of our one of our commitments within that group. Uh, let me let me give you some examples of a few other uh, research groups. Uh, we have we have one um, on trends in educational access and achievement. Hmm. That's being run by Sean Reardon. Okay. Uh, there are big developments underway in the extent to which educational access is or is not widely available. Hmm. Um, we have a, a group on trends in income inequality. We've talked a lot about that already. Yeah. Um, we have a group on trends in social mobility. Hmm. That's a, a a very important commitment for the for the center um, right. because hard to believe, but we don't monitor uh, trends in social mobility to the extent that you might think a country that's putatively so committed to, right. to, to mobility, uh, right. uh, you might think that it would, but, it, huh. but in fact, we don't. We don't. Uh-huh. Um, and so we're trying to develop a new measurement system. Uh, in fact, one that's in part predicated on using uh, internal revenue service uh, 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 data um, we've we've uh, signed a memorandum of understanding with the IRS that will allow us to use those data for the purposes of monitoring uh, social mobility. But of course, and I have to stress this with full confidentiality mm. uh, uh, maintained, that is, we don't even get to see the data, and that's right. how it should be. 
Right. So the IRS, the IRS personnel are undertaking all the analyses. We just supply them with, with um, the computer programs, which they then run, mm. uh, and they'll just report back to us the, the aggregate statistics that are secured on the basis of those, those, those programs. Mm. We really have, people don't realize this, but we really have a national register, mm. just like, say, the Scandinavian countries have. And mm. it's in the form of IRS data. Right. It hasn't been exploited for the purposes of, of monitoring mobility. Oh, but, but now we can. Because here's the trick, and maybe people don't, don't appreciate this, but when parents claim their children as dependents, and there's, of course, a tax advantage to doing so, right. uh, they have to report the Social Security number of those children. Oh, right. This then enables us to, to track that Social Security number forward when those children themselves enter the labor course. And, and make it possible to assess the extent to which they have an economic uh, standing that's similar to or different than that of their parents. Hmm. Wow. So we can find out, for example, what happened to Warren Buffett's children, what happened to, to Bill Gates' children, and of course, <laughs> I'd like to know. at the very top, but right. Right. <laughs> we, we already know for those things. I know, I, guess, I know, but as, as you move down, you know, kind of right. a little bit lower in the, in the income distribution, we don't know what happens to, you know, the right. kids of parents who make a million on average per year or, or half a million or a hundred thousand. Uh-huh. Uh, we just don't don't have that detailed information and, and we finally will. Oh wow. Well I look forward to looking at that. That sounds fascinating to really to be able to look at how well people are able to to move up, you know, the the um the hierarchy or or not and that's a that is a really important question and especially as you said, given how much we seem to be preoccupied as a nation with um our ability to do that or not <laughs> so that's right yeah yeah we have other other research groups um for example we have one on discrimination mm-hmm. um uh in which the idea is we've had this explosion of interest in the experimental monitoring of discrimination mm-hmm. um discrimination by race by motherhood status by all sorts of um uh, say this is that we think ought not enter into an employment decision. Um, but we typically conduct these studies as one-offs, right? Just hmm. so work, work by Shelley Corral or Diva Page or others have, right. has been extremely important in establishing uh, the extent of, of, of discrimination in the labor market. Mm-hmm. But we don't have trend data. We want to know if that discrimination is increasing or diminishing mm-hmm. and what types of discrimination are, are, are the most important. Mm-hmm. And so our idea, and this is very kind of early idea and may, may fail, but the idea that's being, the research group that's, that's undertaking this idea is, is, is led by Shelley Carella and Cecilia Ridgway. Um, the idea is develop a single standardized protocol for assessing discrimination, and then you can just slot in any type of discrimination, discrimination by incarceration status, by motherhood status, by, by race, by immigration status, slot it in, in the contents of the standardized protocol, hmm. and then you can assess which types of discrimination are the strongest, and also monitor over time uh, whether or not some types of discrimination are becoming more or less prominent. Hmm. Wow. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. So the idea, yeah, we'll see. So still in development, but definitely could be quite informative. Um, and Pathways Magazine is another uh, aspect of the center, and you're a co-editor of that. Can you tell us a little bit about that magazine and what readers might find there? 
Sure. Uh, so yeah, I co-edited that with Chris Weimer, who's the associate director of the of, of the Stanford Center, uh, and this is a, a a magazine that's oriented toward introducing a general readership to the most important scholarship on poverty and inequality. Hmm. Uh, so we serve scholars definitely, but 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 we try to 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 provide them with, with work that's readable and engaging and doesn't require any expert knowledge within the particular field. Uh, and it also serves non-scholars as well. A lot of policymakers, it goes out to to lots of people in D.C., and that's probably where our, our biggest constituency is to be found. Hmm. Uh, and so we just, we ask scholars, politicians, policymakers to report on on, on, on research that's, that's uh, relevant to poverty and inequality issues. It's sometimes trend data. It's sometimes research on interventions. Mm. It's sometimes just new new basic research that's relevant to, to, to issues of poverty and inequality. Wow. Great. So another real public-friendly place where kind of your, your average citizen um, could go and find out more about some of these topics. That's right. That's right. Well, what's coming up next for you, just in terms of your own research agenda? What can we look forward to coming out in books or articles in the next months or year or so? We're doing a book on Occupy, uh, a group of us uh, collaborating with uh, uh, Deborah Satz, Doug McAdam, and others um, on a a book that asks top scholars uh, to to weigh in on, on, on what the implications of Occupy might be. Huh. Uh, that's coming out shortly. Okay. Um, I'm deeply involved in the social mobility research that I that I just discussed. Uh, that's one of the research groups in which in which I'm, I'm engaged. Hmm. Um, I should say also we're trying to get going a national a big national survey on social mobility. We hmm. haven't had one for about 40 years, and so it's high time to to, wow. to start up a new one. And I'm I'm hard at work on that. Uh, and then my other main commitment, and, and we touched on it already, is, is trying to develop better, better accounts of the takeoff and in income inequality and what they might mean then for, mm. for, for, for trying to reduce that, that, that rise in income inequality. Wow. That's great. Well, um, we'll look forward to seeing um, all those things as they come out. And I just I thank you so much for your time today. really appreciate um, your talking with us. That was my pleasure. It was, it was, it was a good talk. Great. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Office Hours. Thanks for listening. We've got many more great interviews coming up for you soon, so keep your eye on the societypages.org and tell your friends, colleagues, students, teachers, family members to do the same. See you soon.